0: What holds it together to me is the concept of, at least going back to the original principles of Agile. It's a team that is working together with a mission. And so, as opposed to representatives of silos, it's a team with a mission.
1: From seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruin, and you're in the CTO studio. Brant Cooper is a New York Times best-selling author of The Lean Entrepreneur and the founder of Moves the Needle. He is a trusted advisor to startups and large enterprises around the world, and he has more than 25 years of expertise in changing industrial age mindsets. He's also a sought-after keynote speaker, and in spite of this, he still stopped by our little show to blow my mind. So, Brant is back in the CTO studio. I find conversations with you to be cathartic, peaceful, excitable, measurable, unbridled. Thanks for being with us.
0: Well, I always enjoy the time with you,
1: Etienne, and I agree. We have some pretty good conversations. So, let's talk about horizon planning You and I did a talk about horizon planning, or it came up in one of our uncertainty-certainty conversations. It was actually landed really well with the CTO crowd, especially, I think, because the H1, H2, H3s are such big, like it's a widely adopted way to speak and plan the future. And you basically came out the gates and you were like, hey, there's something that needs to be fixed here in the lexicon that we're using or this commonly agreed upon way of planning. So why don't we jump in and just tell me, like, what is wrong with horizon planning? Maybe tell people what it is and what is this next level of planning that we can do that is more relevant, more modern, more a sign of where we are today?
0: Yeah, so the horizon planning model came from the book called Alchemy of Growth. And I always forget, is that late 80s or late 90s? But it was McKinsey guys, and they were really sort of laying out how corporations survive over the long haul. And so it seems almost obvious now, but basically what they're saying is that you plan your growth initiatives or your growth projects or your new revenue projects over three different time horizons. And so... The horizon one is defending the core business and doing whatever you can to defend and expand the core business. And they actually use the terms innovate in the core. So it could be applying new technology. It could be revamping existing technology, but it's here's our core business and and we're going to do you know, whatever it takes to expand and protect that. And H2s then become well, what are some new revenue sources that we need to actually start today that are gonna really start bearing significant fruit five years down the road? And H3s are the same things, these sort of these options on ideas that may generate revenue, significant revenue may replace existing revenue 10 years down the road. And so from the time it was written to now, those time periods, those horizons have sort of shrunk. I don't think that we think much, further out than five years. So your H1s become defend the core immediately. And then maybe your H2s become two or three years down the road. What are the new revenue sources? And then H3s become what are your revenue sources five years from now? Somewhere along the line, someone equated those time horizons to innovation. And this was not ever part of the core book. So This transfer of it over into these levels of innovation to me is what really broke the model. And so H1s were no longer defend the core. H1s were, okay, well, there's really no innovation we can do right away. So it's continuous improvement. And H2s become, well, that's incremental innovation. So we have to go off and do innovation and we're going to see the returns two or three years down the road. And then H3s become breakthrough innovation. And so we need to invest today in breakthrough innovation so that we see it five years down the road. And to me, this completely destroyed the model because suddenly people are thinking not about all of the different ways that you might produce new revenue, but, oh my gosh, we've got to innovate. And what does that mean? And typically it means new technology, or it means we have to invent something. And you know, I think it's interesting, it would be, I would love to know how many even seven CTO members actually have to invent something. So there's a difference between applying new technology to your existing business and having to invent new technology. And certainly there are companies that belong to seven CTOs where their business model does require you to invent, but it's, it's a minority of the companies. The vast majority of companies in the world do not need to invent And that's usually where people are conflating innovation and invention. Innovation is really bringing invention to the market, but innovation mindset can be, well, how do I tweak my existing business model rather than inventing? Mm. How do I take my existing technology and leverage it in different ways? How do I actually use my existing product, reskin it and go after a different market? Maybe I can take all of what I've got and launch it into an emerging economy. And so suddenly you've got this whole plethora of ways that you might be able to generate new revenue as long as we disconnect it to the word innovation. That's what horizon planning is and fundamentally what's broken about the way it's adopted and used today.
1: So let me just sit on that for a second. Sometimes when I'm in these horizon and have been in these horizon meetings, throwing out the H1, H2, or H3 is almost a deflection strategy where the CTO can say, okay, great, I hear what you're saying. This doesn't defend the core business necessarily. Have the debate, you have the conversation, and you're like, okay, well, let's make this an H2. And it's all done pretty cavalierly, maybe more in the startup scene, where maybe in the enterprise scene, there's like a consultant in the room or a facilitator, and there's this big offsite or something. But that correlation between horizon planning and innovation, isn't that clear to me? Because in my context, it's mostly been used around product development roadmaps, and what are we going to work on next? And let's not work on that next.
0: There's similar beasts. In the corporate world, it's really kind of tied to innovation. But I think that The problem is similar in the sense that is time an input or is time an output? To me, if we're actually judging ideas properly, our time estimates of when it comes to fruition is an output based upon evidence of our ideas. As opposed to a priori, we're saying like, oh, well, this is an H2 because this is five years off. And there's a lot of assumptions built into that and nobody's ever challenging it the CTO maybe is going like, well, the resources to go do this and time is an input as opposed to an output and time actually should be an output. And so what I'm hoping with the visibility planning model is that you're actually looking at what are the desired outcomes for the business over the next five years? What are the ideas that can actually help us achieve those objections? And based upon the evidence for those ideas, we can start laying out when those things will come to fruition. So when they come to fruition is based upon evidence, not based upon the assumptions that are inside the head about how long it's going to take to build.
1: Got it. So before we get into the visibility model, which is the upgrade, let's just sit on this estimation, time, input, output thing, because I think a lot of the exhausting conversations in the c-suite or cto planning is around well how long is it gonna take or what is your estimate and ctos have gone from well i have to gant chart the crap out of this or i have to get my epics and my roadmaps planned out all the way through to hey listen i'm not giving you any estimates because that's just not how life works which i think is equally irresponsible but A lot of the conversations we're having is time-based. And so if, if you could sit a little bit with me on the input and the output, if I understand correctly, can you just define in that context, what does it mean when time is an input and what does it mean? So time is an input means given this amount of time boxing, right? Given this amount of time, what can we do?
0: It's more really around the problem with people coming to CTOs and going, how much time is it going to take to build it? And so we're, we're actually separating out the different risks of an idea. Whereas when I'm talking about evidence, it's like, should we build that? The best answer every, any CEO ought to get to, well, how long is it going to take to build it, should be like, well, why are we building it? Where's the evidence that suggests we should be building it?
1: But isn't that just a deflection? Because ultimately, you still have to come back to the CEO or the product CPO, is still going to come back to, well, how long is that going to take?
0: Yes, but when I'm talking about the idea of evidence, we should be working on the projects. We should be investing in the projects where we understand what the impact it is going to have on the business, right? So that there's evidence that this is going to have mm-hmm. an impact on the business. And so the investment of resources to actually build it then becomes sort of the second axis. It's like, well, yes, we believe based upon evidence that it's going to have a big impact on the business. And now we have to understand, well, what's the level of effort that's yes. going to get us there? Yes. And so now we can actually say like, okay, well, if I invest more resources, is it going to get it nearer? Or is it really not a function of the amount of resources? It's really the complexity or, or whatever else might be inputs that the CTO is a, an expert on.
1: I get it. So for instance... If I start with the why and I prove it with the evidence, I can then plan for the resourcing and time becomes like a consequence slash dial. It's not even really...
0: It's a dial. It's a dial to a certain extent, right?
1: And so the trick would be for the CTO then to be able to facilitate that conversation.
0: Right. And that's why I was flippantly saying, admittedly flippantly, why should I build it? But this is sort of that the siloed nature of C-suites where instead of them acting like, a, am going to throw this out there, like an agile team, the seven CTOs' only input on whether we should build it is how long will it take to build it?
1: It's like you have this rich, imaginative conversation in your head. You're disappointed. Then you go to fighting mode. And the only words you get to utter is how long is it going to take?
0: Right. And it's just absurd. So in the visibility model, not to hop ahead again, but one of the things that I try to say for a mature organization, the sort of fundamental needs is first to understand what your corporate objectives are over time using quantifiable metrics to what are the different responsibilities sort of down at the next level, business unit wise, not function wise. And then three, what is the gap between where we are now and where we need to be? So then only if you understand the gaps can you then start playing with, well, how do we close those gaps? And and you're brainstorming solutions or you have existing initiatives that are you have projections, even though they're just thrown out there, you have these estimates based upon, well, we think this is going to close this gap, this amount. And only then can you actually go. Okay, well, so where's the uncertainty in that particular initiative in closing the gap for those objectives that we've actually all agreed upon? And so in that conversation, where you're saying, what is the evidence? You're looking at it from a business point of view on one axis. What is the impact it's going to have, and what's the evidence of that that impact? And then what is the level of effort and how well do we understand that level of effort and how well do we understand the stakeholder needs? And that's the other access. And so then you're getting into where time becomes this output. And if you really think it's going to drive that level of impact based upon the amount of evidence, and you can actually close the amount of time it's going to take for you to get there by increasing resources, then it becomes sort of an obvious decision that that's where the resources ought to go. I feel like I'm still muddying the waters there. No,
1: so I. the answer to a time-based what-can-be-done conversation, ergo horizon planning, is let's go to evidence and resource. Let's go to evidence-based, this is why it's good for the business, and let's really put a, a lot of effort into that. Then let's look at what it's going to take to do that. Let's look at the gaps in what we have. And then time how long it's going to take as becomes a, as we said earlier, a secondary thing.
0: Right. I mean, it's kind of, you know, back in the, the aughts, the 2000s, a lot of IT organizations sort of separate from the technical, the CTO type of organizations, but the actual internal IT faced the similar sort of thing where they actually, you know, they had to increase their own personal power, the CIO to say like, yeah, okay, fine. You want me to fund and resource this initiative, which projects do you want me to take away from? And I'm sure that the CTOs have the same the same All the sort time. of conversation. All the time. So like if we looked at it from that framework, the decision on how we determine where those resources should be going should be based upon the evidence for the impact that those different projects are going to have on the desired outcomes that we share.
1: What would you say about this evidence word? So It could be perceived that this whole give me the evidence, show me the evidence is also fighting words. If the C-suite's like how long is it going to take or the VP of product is how long is it going to take is fighting words, then the CTO retorting with, well, what's the evidence also seems like fighting words.
0: Right. And so in my naive view of the utopian world where these people are actually working together, what you are agreeing to do is... We need to spin up a cross-functional team that actually generates the evidence. That should actually be sort of the standard practice because frankly, the CTO office should be contributing to the gathering of evidence. So when you start talking about things like running experiments or even producing prototypes or MVPs, then that is a role for the CTO's office contributing to creating the evidence. And so then we started opening up this whole other can of worms about how the different groups are working together. So the generating the evidence should not just be left to marketing or sales or product management as this siloed function that they're going to go and do market research that produces the evidence. And so in an ideal world, the more uncertainty that you face, the more diverse the teams are that you are putting together to go and tackle that uncertainty. And so I'm sure we've talked about this before, Etienne, it's sort of the the army versus the special forces analogy the army can de- still deploy the platoons in a very specific way where they're all kind of doing the same things in order to achieve a specific objective and the uncertainty level is relatively low compared to i don't know there's other situations of war where it's where it's obviously very uncertain but contrasting the mission of a platoon versus the mission to go out, take out Osama bin Laden, right? I mean, so like, it's, it's like there you need this cross-functional interdisciplinary team because you need all this mm. huge variety of expertise because that mission is massively uncertain compared to the mission of, of an army platoon. And so both of those teams can be agile, but the makeup of the team's, is different based upon the level of uncertainty. And so the same sort of thing exists inside of the corporation where you've got these different initiatives where the level of impact is understood and the level of effort is understood and the desirability and the needs of the stakeholders is well understood. Those are agile teams then that should go and execute and we should be able to measure their progress and measure that they're achieving the objectives, then we know what the outcome is of them achieving the objectives. But the moment that you have these other initiatives where you're not getting the desired output or their impact, where there's massive amounts of uncertainty, then the teams you put together there have to be able to deal with uncertainty rather than simply executing the plans that we know will work.
1: I love that. And I think that just the naming of it is so disarming in a way for me because If there can be a vernacular in the company that's just like, hey, we are concerned with visibility, we all know what lack of visibility looks like, we all know what that feels like, you stare over the Serengeti, or you drive through the foggy highways of Portland or whatever, and evidence being, hey, so because of our visibility, let's gather some evidence that I'm on the right road, or let's wait for some time to pass, or or let's do something that keeps. Generating evidence or finding evidence, I just feel like that should be such a great conversation inside of companies.
0: Yeah, the evidence is what's improving the visibility. Yes, and so then it gives you the confidence to continue to allocate resources or increase the resources. The CTO's office needs to be able to work in that. It makes agile work <laughs> separate from the discussion of how you scale agile. What stops? Agility inside the company is that agile doesn't reach beyond the technical. But if you imagine syncing up the agility of your development resources with the agility of other groups that are generating similar evidence, or that there's a cross functional team there where your marketers and your salespeople and engineers and product managers are creating evidence, then that's what's improving visibility. And so that's where we want to put more resources is where their visibility is improved.
1: A lot of technical organizations are putting together these squads, these full stack pods or whatever, to cover everything inside of the application stack from product all the way down to UX design, all the way down to engineering and QA, and they're trying to create these self-contained pods. What I think is pretty incredible is, is if you think about the evidence team, it's like, hey, we want to do these things. Let's put together that full stack team cross-functionally in our company to gather the evidence required so we can all allocate our resources with confidence. That sounds beautiful. Totally. And to me, again,
0: what holds it together to me is the concept of at least going back to the original principles of agile. It's a team that is working together with a mission. And so as opposed to representatives of silos it's a team with a mission
1: yes advocating or protecting or galvanizing or yeah so horizon planning is arbitrarily assigning time to planning the answer to that is visibility planning which is let's look at this in terms of our visibility and then you have a weight or a number scheme for like v1 v2 v3s right do you want to talk us through that?
0: It's sort of trying to follow the horizon model. And really, you can lay them next to each other. It's not like you don't really have to abandon your existing horizon. It's just that you're using the visibility to actually populate your horizons as opposed to the other way around. And so the increased visibility, so V1s would be there's evidence that supports the, this level of impact. So it's sort of a high impact with high evidence for that impact and it's us understanding the effort required and understanding the needs of the stakeholders, whether they're internal or customers. So that's sort of the second access is the the understanding the effort required to meet the needs of the stakeholders. Then those are sort of the V1s. Well, so the V1s should translate into include, we understand the level of impact. So therefore we understand how long it's going to take us to get there. And so then the the V1 translates over to like, what time horizon does that lie on? Based upon our evidence, is it going to take us three years or five years? Okay, so where does that fit on the time horizon model then? That's fine. They, they can exist together. And a matter of fact, the way you actually get them to work together is you go and look at all of those things that are mapped out on your time horizon, your horizon planning model, and you go like, well, let's now evaluate this based upon These uncertainty factors. Let's figure out what the visibility level is and see if then that changes the way they're allocated on the Mm. horizon model.
1: There could be a commonly adopted taxonomy, which is like, hey, is this a V1? Is this a V2? Is this a V3? So V1 meaning the effort is known, the impact is known. V2, meaning either of those two is not quite known. We don't know the effort or we don't know the impact.
0: Right. So that's where we need to invest in the exploration work, reducing the amount of uncertainty.
1: That's where you say, listen, we do need our little delta force to figure out what can we do to beef up from a V2 to a V1, if at all.
0: Right. Exactly. And
1: then V3s are like the, hey, man, seriously, y'all want us to do a V3? Well, I think
0: so. The V3s are interesting because the way I like to put it is that all ideas are V3 <laughs> until you show me they're not. And so the way you, you become a V2 is by generating evidence. What's interesting about that model, that means somebody could have this great idea and you go, okay, well, that's a, that's a V3.
1: I don't think I like this idea of, hey, V1s and H1, the v- visibility and the horizon can all coexist. You like it or you don't like it? I don't like, like it. it. Yeah.
0: I don't think that you can get people to move away from the time part of it, though. And again, if you're actually saying something as a Horizon 2 based upon evidence, then that's actually a good thing. It does provide it sort of a different window into how you're allocating resources.
1: You wouldn't ever take a V1 and put that on an H2 or an H3, right? Because why? Because what you know, the
0: evidence says
1: that this is a five-year project. Ah, okay, got it, got it. So, yes, it's not a priority thing. It's not to be confused with priority. Right. And then, of course, P1s, and, you know, I mean, it's, this is, there's a lot of, a lot of these. Yeah, exactly.
0: But the thing is, is that the, again, if you get away from just the CTO perspective, if you're really trying to get back to closing the gaps on what your strategic priorities over are around some time period, then, when you're going to receive the ROI, when you project to perceive the ROI becomes important because that's how you are planning to plug those gaps. What if there were high degree of evidence that you had to re-architect one of your systems, but that the re-architecture was going to take three years and then converting customers over was going to take another year or whatever, you know, just imagine that, that this is like, We know we have to do this. It's going to have a high impact for the business long term, and it's going to take four years or actually in the fifth year is where we're going to actually start seeing increased customer engagement, increased ability to sell it. And the evidence suggests that this is exactly spot on and we have to do it, but that we're not really going to see how this is going to help us close the gaps in our priorities for five years then to me there's some value of putting that on like okay well this is you know if you really want to know this is a this is a 5 year effort and so we're allocating our resources based upon we know it's going to close the percentage of this gap this amount we have to do the work so it's not a priority it's a time horizon and so if you go back to where the very beginning of our conversation was that's how the horizon model is used today it's just it's like well what should we be working on for today's business and what should we be working on for the future of the business?
1: And presumably with the visibility planning, because you've done the work to gather the evidence, all fears that we're misallocating resources should theoretically be allayed because we did the work to demystify this project.
0: Yeah, I think that that's true. I think that the problem probably arises in year two or three of that project are all of those truths the, the same? What worries me, and, that, and I see this a lot in innovation groups, is that they'll gather a bunch of evidence for something, and then they'll go like, okay, now we're going to flip it over to IT or the CTO, and they're going to work on it for three or four years. And so there's kind of a problem with that approach, too, because things are changing all of the time. And so I think that the checking in with that evidence or that special forces team that was first created needs to actually be continue to function. They're actually should be building the business side while the product side. It's just like a startup at that point, right, Etienne? I mean, it's like the classic example of the CEO goes like, well, yeah, I figured out all of this evidence, so now I'm going to go hire my technical co-founder who's going to sit down and build this thing for three years. That never works. I mean, literally never works. The business side, the marketing, the product management, the business model, all of those things should be this cross-functional team that's continuing to build out the project where where the CTO side of that is just one input into this new revenue stream that you're building.
1: Absolutely. And and then would you say that you're striving to keep a V1, a V1, and that it could maybe sink into a V2 and then let's totally. get it back to a V1. Yeah. Exactly right. Yep. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. You don't want to say let's have this beautifully agile process to determine the visibility and then sink into a waterfall model because we're so convinced that the V1 will stay a V1 for three years.
0: Well, and the thing is, is that this kind of gets back to the book Disruption Proof, is that we know now that things can, <laughs> they can change and they continue to change. I mean, it's just one thing after another, right? And so we have to understand that this is the world that we live in, that things are changing so quickly and can change so quickly that Today's V one really is tomorrow's V two.
1: That is so, so important. And I, I had this conversation with some people recently about if only leaders could be comfortable with not knowing or being wrong. It just, just seems like I don't know if it's a Western culture thing or if it's a tech bro thing or if it's a Silicon Valley thing or if it's a internet thing, but it's really widely accepted. To say, oh, leaders should be able to admit failure and fail fast. And it, it seems like it's a stand in a circle holding hands. Yes, we all agree to that. But boy, when we go back to our offices, we define leadership as knowing and decisions and just mm. black and white, go, go, go. So much of this would be doable if we get rid of that mantle.
0: Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I guess I I write quite a bit about the ability to admit you don't know. You can't really even get into problem-solving mode until you admit that you don't know. And sort of, to me, the CTO has always lived in that realm, right? Because technically, maybe
1: no. But somehow you feel like you have to know. Right. And that's why I think maybe that's the con, is the good CEO probably knows that by asking my CTO, how long is it going to take? I've hacked their brain into giving me an answer.
0: <laughs> well, it's funny, though, because the good CEOs also know that the answer is <laughs> but just that They want to actually be able to have something that they can hold people accountable to.
1: I don't want to devolve this conversation, but I really hate that about good CEOs. Let the record show that I used air quotes because throwing something out there to see what kind of response you're going to get man to me that's such weak leadership that just leads to distrust and kills relationship so there's this
0: organization that i'm i'm working with that sort of has a a little monopoly and so they're not hurting really bad for revenues but But they do also recognize that they're very stagnant and very slow moving and that they have all of these projects and they rarely achieve what the desired outcome is. And I was actually astounded to find that the five-year strategic plan for this organization did not include quantifiable outcomes. I kind of tried to throw this out there on LinkedIn and I didn't get a ton of responses. I go, does your organization create quantifiable outcomes? And I think the majority said yes. And then I asked the second question, which was, are those quantifiable outcomes actually then filtered down to whatever structure there is, groups, business units, departments, so that these subsequent layers below the C-suite also had quantifiable outcomes? And the numbers immediately went from 100% to you know 50% or maybe 66% or 67%. But I think that if then you take that and ask the next question, which is, well, what if you take it a a layer down below that? At some point, I think that you get to that every organization breaks at some layer where the work that they are actually managing is no longer tied to quantifiable outcomes that can be rolled up to the next level's quantifiable outcome. There's this break from the work that we're doing and those desired outcomes. And this is like really extraordinary to me because I don't know how you can really manage an organization that way. And so I'm not even sure how to solve that, except that it seems like that has to be sort of a C-suite mandate that when we get down to these lower levels, we're still managing people where their outcomes, you can draw a straight line to what the business outcomes are.
1: Reminds me a little bit of VCs portfolio management, where you know that nine out of 10 of your investments are going to fail. It's almost like you're managing your team and your development efforts around, well, some of my teams are going to hit it and some are not. <laughs> I think Uber did that, right? Where their teams were compete, like basically they just gave the same squads the same work. Oh, interesting. Or different squads the same work. Wow. Because they had enough money or had enough. There was so much urgency that it was like, well, it's better for us to have three or four teams do the same work because we'll just take whatever team gives us the best work first because that investment is worth it for us. That's got to be so terrible. That's what gotta a be terrible environment.
0: I'm
1: competing with my own colleagues to deliver on my sprint.
0: Yeah, kind of weird to think that people want to build a culture that's cutthroat like that maybe modeled after ivy league schools or something i don't know
1: so how i want to land this i love this so the horizon planning versus visibility planning i see this as such a wonderful refreshing way for a cto type to bring the conversation hopefully the whole c-suite's this conversation but in a c-suite that is obsessed with time-based planning when is something going to be done How long is it gonna take to get something done? Let's bring the conversation to how do we create a graph or how do we create a team that can help us figure out the impact that it's gonna have on the organization and the effort that is required, i.e. evidence. And let's get our low visibility to high visibility so that when we do allocate resources, we're good to go, we're happy. Yeah, we're confident.
0: And even all of those initiatives then can be milestone based. And in, so instead of just budget allocations, we're actually allocating based upon achieving milestones.
1: I love that. Just one final question. So, when it comes to the gap analysis between what we want and where we are, is this something that the cross functional team figures out when they're gathering evidence? Or is this something that's done before because we're figuring out what needs to be built hypothetically?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's done before. So I mean, I like where we are today, choose any metric. I mean, you could go with revenue or you could go with profitability, you could go with even sustainability metrics or diversity metrics or customer satisfaction or customer delight metrics. Any of these things are the type of metrics that I'm talking about. If you look at, well, the current revenue levels that we're getting from product A today. And what we believe is a 5% increase year over year. You know, hopefully that's based upon the evidence. We know that we're 75% to whatever the desired revenue is for the company, right? So, I mean, it's Mm. the gap analysis is, where are we today in our levels of whatever that metric is? And what is what is the metric that we need to achieve by when?
1: Okay, so the gap isn't really in what we have, it's in the desired outcome. We want to be at X, we're currently at X one. What is that gap? And then therefore, what can we build that impacts and closes that gap?
0: The higher level up the conversation goes, It could be product related. It could be marketing related. It could be sales related. Mm, It's how we close the gaps. It could even be acquisitions. And so the planning that's done at that level becomes directly for achieving the strategic objectives. But you can also look at that even from a departmental view. So even if your C-suite is not playing ball and you have your 10 things that you're working on, a CTO understands what, their contribution needs to be, what are they signed up for in terms of their metrics that they have to hit, then they can start evaluating their own projects in terms of whether that's going to contribute to their own ability to achieve mm. their contribution.
1: So is this stuff all documented in your book? <laughs> no, this is
0: sort of touched is the next on. one. It's actually sort of touched lightly on the book and something that I've been focused on the last couple of months. And it's, Evolving and so yeah, maybe it's the next book, or maybe people becoming engaged in the conversation as we sort of build this out.
1: Well, disruption proof is available on Amazon.com, and I encourage people to go check it out. Basically, anything Bront writes, I read.
0: <laughs> Thanks, at the end There's actually a prioritization planning tool that's available for download on uh, MovesTheNeedle.com for free too, for, for free. So. If people want to check out, it's just a simple two by two. But if you draw that on a whiteboard or put it up as a poster and take your existing initiatives and maybe you want to brainstorm new ways that you might achieve, you know, whatever aggressive objective you're signed up for. And you can just lay them out on that two by two and maybe helps you prioritize where you should be allocating resources in order for you to even just hit your objectives. Yeah, so I now have a tool that's online that people can go and just download.
1: Okay, very cool. com, And thank you, Bron Cooper. Fun as always,
0: Etienne. So thank you for having me.
1: And uh, we'll have you soon again. Hopefully very soon. So cheers.